Oh, the stories we will tell when this pandemic is over. On March 11 and 12, Costco companies sold 8.5 times the average amount of toilet paper for a two-day period. Gun stores nearly sold out, apparently so people could shoot anyone who was going to try to steal their stockpile of toilet paper. A reputable news reporter declared that governors seeking to end the stay-at-home order sooner than later are members of a, these are his words, a death cult. This drama from a man who supports the widespread slaughter of unborn girls as a woman's right. What a crazy world and what a crazy response we see to this crisis every day. Well, as we observe our world unravel in the face of this pandemic that now separates us, it will do us well to remember unbelievers are terrified by death. This fear takes many forms. I mean, most evidently are those who are terrified by the prospect of dying, and they become obsessed with protecting their health with ridiculous measures and protecting the health of others who are not even asking for it. But others seem less affected by the fear of dying but are deathly afraid of losing the securities and the pleasures of this life. And so they put a vice grip hold on absolutely everything. Now I'd like us to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 as we think of a redeemed approach to this crisis. As we think about how we should filter life as God's people. And I'm going to ask us here as we turn to 2 Timothy 1.7, if you're viewing this alone, for you just to read this verse out loud. Or if you're in a smaller gathering, a family gathering, to choose someone to read this text. And I'll ask this a number of times through the video. But if someone would take 2 Timothy chapter 1 and read for your group verse 7. Reading 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Christian, I realize the context here is a bit different than ours. But know this, the risen reigning Christ does not pour out upon his people a spirit of fear. The Greek word could be translated cowardice or timidity. The reigning Christ pours out upon his people a spirit of power, of love, of self-control. Now Paul again is doing something a bit differently here with Timothy than what we are addressing directly today. But it is the Spirit of God pouring out His grace upon the redeemed that ties us to what Timothy is facing and it applies it to what we are now facing. Self-control, as is translated here, speaks of prudent or wise self-discipline. Wise moral living reflected in disciplined responses to godly principles of thought and behavior. So I can't think of a word, particularly in the Greek, that would be any more the polar opposite of emotional, reactionary, irrational, unhinged ways of responding to life. 
God pours out through his spirit upon his people a spirit of prudent, self-disciplined, self-controlled behavior and responses. Let's turn then and link that idea to the book of Hebrews in chapter 2. Make your way to Hebrews chapter 2. And if someone would read here verses 14 and 15, as we look at Hebrews 2, it is precisely at this point that the believer has such an otherworldly advantage over unbelievers to have received the spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Here we have a tremendous advantage over the unbelieving world. And let's consider that as we think of Christ's conquest on this Lord's day, the conquest of death, the salvation that he provides. Will someone please read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Reading Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 speak of the fear of death that haunts the unbeliever's experience. It is enslaving, in fact. The author of Hebrews is not saying that every unbeliever is consciously terrified by death all the time. But the point is that the lost process life from the perspective that death is an unconquerable enemy that stalks them and will one day devour them. Let me draw out a far from ideal parable, but I think one that may serve us at least emotionally, psychologically for a moment. Picture an ancient mythical village on the edge of a dense forest. A deadly dragon lives in the forest and routinely kills people who wander therein. There's a young boy and a young girl in these very hard times. They live in the village together and they have to go into the forest every evening to fetch water from a lake for their families. The boy just chooses not to think about the dragon. But he knows in the back of his mind he's very aware that one day he will be eaten alive. He can't keep getting water here every night and not be eaten. He's attended the funeral of some of his friends, of other individuals in the village that had been destroyed by the dragon. But on another day, the girl enters the forest with her father. And the dragon appears and her father has a sword and he defeats that dragon. But in this mythical land, dragons take 10 years to actually die. Yet by defeating the dragon, the father has tamed it to recognize that he can never harm anyone in this man's family for the next 10 years as his life ebbs away, as the dragon's life ebbs away. The father has now protected his family, has trained or tamed this dragon to know that he can never kill one of the family. So he can never kill this girl. And in exchange in this mythical land, the girl's father must live in a far-off village on the other side of the forest, a forest no one would ever be able to pass. 
and the entrance to the village where the father must now live is known only to the dragon. So the dragon cannot eat any of the man's family, but if the dragon chooses, he can bring a member of that family to live with the father in the village that only the dragon knows. So now, think on these, this parable. Think of how the boy and the girl enter into the woods, their frame of mind, their focus. Think of the different perspectives that they have. This young boy sadly fears the dragon will devour him. Every time he's there, as much as he tries not to think about it, he knows that dragon is lurking and will take him out. The girl knows she's safe. She's in the same environment, but she knows she's safe. We'll come back to her in a few moments. But thinking of the application of that parable, by his death and resurrection, Jesus has defeated the dragon of death and he's tamed it. For those who place their trust in Christ as Savior, all the dragon can do is either not show up day by day or take us to our Father's home. That's all the power that's there. The stinger has been severed from the tail of the dragon. There is now no more fear. That fear has been defeated by Christ. In defeating death, he takes away the fear of death in the hearts of his people, pouring out upon them a spirit of power and love and self-control, not panic and cowardice and timidity. That takes us to Philippians 1 in this chain of familiar passages. But Philippians chapter 1, turn there to Philippians chapter 1. And if you or someone in the group would please read Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21, please read Philippians 1. Notice there at the end of verse 20, Paul expresses confidence that Christ will be honored in my body, whether that is by life or if that is by death. Now I question, are these the words of one who fears death? For Paul, death is no tragedy. It is the porthole of, to glory, to rescue, to joy. So Paul reasons in verse 21, from, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, my identity, my life force comes from Christ. I rejoice to walk with him, to live with him, to serve his cause. But if I die, well, that would be gain. Christian, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and he has redeemed your soul, then for you the dragon of death is no cause for fear. It is, in fact, a healthy desire. You say desire. Read verses 22 and 23. Again, someone just read out loud 
for the group or read individually verses 22 through 23. Notice that Paul says, my desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. Death is a desire than in some sense, for it brings us to Christ. But as he says that, better than what? It's better than continuing to live in this fallen world. This is not a death wish on Paul's part, a craving to escape this world, to avoid his responsibilities. Life in this fallen world is good. And Paul makes that very clear. Life in this fallen world is fellowship with the risen Christ. What is more, it is the life of ministry. And that's the whole point of verse 22. And that point then is repeated. Notice it in verse 22. If I'm here, if I remain, if I live, that means fruitful labor for you. I have the opportunity to serve you, to build you up, to be part of Christ's work in this world as he builds up his church. So that's good. Notice how this is repeated in verse 24. Again, someone read out loud verse 24. So there it is again. Life is a wonderful opportunity to walk with Christ as we labor to advance his kingdom and build up his body. But death is an entering into the presence of Jesus for eternity. All sin and sorrow, all disease and dying, all futility and fear are forever gone. And we enter into the presence of Christ. And that, Christian, is gain. Cowardice or timidity in the face of coronavirus, economic disaster, or any other enemy is incompatible with the realities of our salvation. What is compatible with the realities of our salvation? We've looked at what is not, that, that spirit of fear, that idea that death is ultimate loss. No, it's gain. It ushers us into the presence of our Lord. And so it is gain. The life is good. But what is compatible? What is the focus or the perspective that we have been given by Christ in light of his victory over death? What does that look like? For the answer here, I'd like us to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This passage unveils the proper response to life if Christ has indeed rescued you from death. If his work of saving grace has been realized in your life, here's the focus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's shorthand for you're a genuine born-again believer who's been united to the death of Christ and to the resurrection of Christ through faith. So he speaks here of our identification with Christ's death in our place with his resurrection as our representative head. That is, my, ident my identity is no longer me in Adam. My identity is now my spiritual union with Jesus, the new me in Jesus. 
So since this is the case, it only makes sense, the second part of verse 1, to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. At birth, again, our identity is rooted in Adam. And this world is our only focus. It's all we can see. It's all we live for. But when we are united by faith with Jesus, he becomes the new head of our new identity. From that point forward then, we must calibrate our minds and interests to the kingdom that Jesus rules from heaven's throne. And that reminds us that this world is not our home. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of another kingdom. So coronavirus, death is gain. It's going to change the way that I view this disease. It's going to change the way that I view those who are afraid of this disease. Those who do not know Christ, there needs to be a high level of compassion for those that fear death. They're just being rational. They should fear death. And if you are separated from Christ, you know that you've not been born again by Jesus. You should fear death. But as we as believers look at coronavirus, we have been rescued by his death and resurrection. And so we look at life as service to Christ and his people, not as something to hold on to with a, as it like with a vice grip. As Jesus instructed us in Luke 9, life is to let it go. Those who hold on and grasp life will lose it. But those who let it go and place it in God's hands will gain life. So coronavirus, death is gain, and life is service to Christ and his people. That's where our focus is. That's our mindset. Economic collapse, everything we possess is placed only temporarily in our care as stewards of God's gifts. If God sovereignly chooses to impoverish all of us, we can rest in that. Nothing was ours to hold permanently anyway. We have set our affections on the kingdom above. We are ambassadors here. We are on temporary assignment in this world. And everything we possess and hold is part of that temporary assignment. What ultimately matters to us is that the reigning Christ is my Savior, the cornerstone of my identity. He is my high tower. He is my eternal hope. Not the things of this world. Not the riches of this world. Not the health of this world. Christ is my hope. And Christ alone. So we are headed to a kingdom that will never crumble, unlike every other kingdom on earth including our nation. It will die. The United States of America will one day no longer be. But the kingdom of Christ lasts forever. It cannot be destroyed. Now, one of the dangers in this string of passages is that they are familiar with us. 
And we can take these familiar concepts and just say, I understand that, I get that, and move on too quickly. I believe that there is a genuine battle of faith that's going on in the heart of each one of us. As I mentioned in the previous video, the pastor's talk, there's a danger that we weaken as a church. There's a danger that we weaken as people. Here is the perspective that will keep us faithful to Christ. The danger in familiar concepts is that we can quickly dismiss them, but taking them to heart, think of it. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the kingdom we serve. That's where our interests should lie. To set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. There, Paul brings out the negative side. We can become obsessed with the things of this earth. We can become overwhelmed with the fears that meet us here. God, let's remember, has delivered us from condemnation. That's the big picture. He has delivered us from the dragon of death and Satan. And he did such that the dragon of death can do nothing more than walk us into Jesus' eternal presence. Remember the young girl. She knows someday the dragon will find her, and she knows someday that that dragon will usher her into the village where her father lives. Oh, what a greater prospect we have. For we know that our Father is not separated from us by the dragon of death, not living in some other village somewhere in a mythical land. But our Father is in heaven. Our Savior reigns from heaven's throne over a kingdom that will never end. But death, that dragon, will only then usher us into his presence it has no more power. And the things of this earth, if we set our affection on the kingdom of Christ, can come and go. We can be at peace with much. We can be at peace with little. We can be at peace where things are easy or where we are scraping to stay alive. All of our needs are met in Christ. Death is a defeated enemy. And so life is Christ. It's living in fellowship with him. It's living as an ambassador of that eternal land. And death is gain. Let us set our focus then on the reign of the risen Christ and his kingdom. May God find us walking with him, seeking him in his word, seeking him in prayer, seeking to build up his church, seeking to reach the lost with the gospel, seeking to grow deeper and stronger as the people of God, not clinging to kingdoms that are crumbling and falling in this dying world. Our focus, our security is in a kingdom that will never end. May the spirit that precedes us, that epitomizes our life, evidence that hope and that faith as we seek the Lord day by day. I'm praying for you. Let's pray for one another that our focus would be overwhelmed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
not by the trials of this dying world.